outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today in the show, we're talking trees, why they're valuable to wildlife in the natural world, where to plant them, and how to do it well. And to help us have that conversation, I'm joined by Bob and Ian Wallace of Chestnut Hill Outdoors. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today in the show, we're talking trees. We're going to cover everything you need to know to make trees a part of your habitat improvement plan. We're going to be talking about how trees can help you improve a property for deer and deer hunting, as well as how to make it be beneficial for all sorts of animals and birds and pollinators living in your neck of the woods. We're going to explore the services that trees can provide, not just feeding deer mass, but everything else they do for the environment. We're going to talk about why they're so impactful, how to choose the most useful and appropriate trees for your goals and for your area. We're going to talk through what kinds of trees are the best for certain goals. We'll definitely talk a lot about how to choose the right places to plant and the right ways to do that planting itself. This is really great stuff. We've never spent a really uh, kind of substantial amount of time talking about trees, mast trees, hard mast, soft mast, fruit trees, all the many different things these can do for deer and deer hunting. And today I'm really glad we're doing it. And my guests today are two folks who have a, have a deep and very, very interesting connection to trees, chestnut trees in particular. Now, you might not know much about chestnut trees because they have mostly been wiped off the face of our continent, but it wasn't always that way. And it might not have to stay that way in the future either. See, our guests are Bob and Ian Wallace of Chestnut Hill Outdoors. They run a very successful nursery selling trees all across the country with a particular focus on trees for wildlife, for hunters and land managers. And they've got a tremendous knowledge of this intersection between growing and planting trees and then also meeting the goals that we as hunters and outdoors people have. So that's what they do, but they've got this, this really interesting history that I found fascinating as well. So before we get them on, I want to read you just a little bit about something related to this history and this history of chestnut trees. 
which is something that they are deeply connected to. And it was talked about in my recent favorite book of the year, The Overstory, which maybe you've heard me ranting and raving about here uh, in recent weeks, but it's it's good stuff. And I thought this would be a really appropriate time to uh, read you a little excerpt here. So this is a little snapshot of the history that preceded Bob and Ian's story. And then when they come on, they're going to explain how they fit into this. So here's the excerpt. The killer slips into the country from Asia in the wood of Chinese chestnuts destined for fancy gardens. A tree in the Bronx Zoological Park turns October colors in July. Leaves curl and scorch to the hue of cinnamon. Rings of orange spots spread across the swollen bark. At the slightest press, the wood caves in. Within a year, orange spots fleck chestnuts throughout the Bronx, the fruiting bodies of a parasite that has already killed its host. Every infection releases a horde of spores on the rain and wind. City gardeners mobilize a counterattack. They lap off infected branches and burn them. They spray trees with a lime and copper sulfate from horse-drawn wagons. All they do is spread the spores on the axes they use to cut the victims down. A researcher at the New York Botanical Garden identifies the killer as a fungus new to man. He publishes the results and leaves town to beat the summer heat. When he returns a few weeks later, not a chestnut in the city is worth saving. Death races across Connecticut and Massachusetts, jumping dozens of miles a year. Trees succumb by the hundreds of thousands. A country watches dumbstruck as New England's priceless chestnuts melt away. The tree of the tanning industry, of railroad ties, train cars, telegraph poles, fuel, fences, houses, barns, fine desks, tables, pianos, crates, paper pulp, and endless free shade and food, the most harvested tree in the country, is vanishing. Pennsylvania tries to cut a buffer hundreds of miles wide across the state. In Virginia, on the northern edge of the country's richest chestnut forest, people call for a religious revival to purge the sin behind the plague. America's perfect tree, backbone of entire rural economies, the limber, durable redwood of the east with three dozen industrial uses, every fourth tree of a forest stretching 200 million acres from Maine down to the Gulf, is doomed. A five-year-old in Tennessee who sees the first orange spots appear in her magic woods, will have nothing left to show her own children except pictures. They'll never see the ripe, full habit of the tree, never know the sight and sound and smell of their mother's childhood. Millions of dead stumps sprout suckers that struggle on year after year before dying of an infection that, preserved in these very stubborn shoots, will never disappear. By 1940, the fungus takes everything, all the way out to the farthest stands in southern Illinois. Four billion trees in the native range vanish into myth. Aside from a few secret pockets of resistance, the only chestnuts left are those the pioneers took far away to states beyond the reach of the drifting spores. And so this is where Bob's family comes into play because his family helped find some of those last survivors and bring them into the future. So, that, my friends, is what we're going to discuss. We're going to get this very interesting story, and we're then going to dive into how we can plant trees like this, whether it's chestnuts or apple trees or oak trees or persimmons, so many other things, and do great things for the wildlife that we hope to hunt, that we want to watch, that we want to help, and uh, man, get something out there that's good for our kids and their kids too. So that's the game plan today. I'm excited about it. Bob and Ian are great guests. I think you're going to enjoy chatting with them. And so I think let's uh, 
let's just get into that story. Now, I will give you one quick heads up. We did have some sound quality issues for parts of this one in the beginning, so I'm sorry in advance for the audio inconvenience, but thanks for bearing with it. It does get better later in the show. So thanks, and here we go. All right, here with me now on the show, I've got Ian and Bob Wallace. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I really appreciate you making the time. I'm uh, I'm on a little bit of a personal tree kick. I've been I've read a couple books that got me more fascinated with trees than I ever have before. So the last two months or so, I've been just diving really deep into the world of trees and forests and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so I'm particularly excited about this one, given your guys' history and your specialty. Um, so I guess with that said. Could the two of you, you know, just give me a quick introduction to to yourselves and your role today uh, with the nursery? Uh, Ian, do you want to kick things off, maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Ian Wallace. Uh, I'm Bob's son. Um, Bob uh, Bob founded uh, the nursery with with my mom, Deb, about gosh, forty forty something years ago now, and. Um, my brother and I have taken over uh, operations at this point, um, and you know I'll uh, I'll let Bob kind of explain a little bit of the history of everything. Um, but you know, we as a family have been um, really involved in in the nursery industry and in all things plants for uh, a really long time. Uh, my my great grandfather was Dr. Dunstan, who bred the Dunstan chestnut, and he was a plant breeder, uh, and and so we we have you know generations of uh, just knowledge and dirt wisdom that um, you know we we find you know it, it's a um, just it's it's crucial to pass that information on to other people um, because we think that you know trees and plants are of course just a crucial part of our our local ecosystems. Yeah. Bob, uh, what about you? Can you give us a little more of that backstory? So I got involved in chestnut. My father was a plant breeder at the University of Florida, and my mom's dad, his father-in-law, was a uh, grape breeder, and he got given some cuttings from an American chestnut tree that had survived in a grove of a hundred acres of dead trees from Ohio. Chestnuts are a really unique tree. They were the most common tree in the Eastern hardwood forest and for millennia. And they were an incredibly prolific food producing tree. Chestnuts are high in carbohydrates, high in protein, high in water, low in fat. So they're really nutritionally like a grain, like brown rice that grows on a tree. And if you could imagine what that means, if you are a deer or a squirrel or a hog or whatever, it's an incredibly valuable food source. And every fall throughout eastern North America, there was a giant mass crop of chestnuts. And they literally were in some areas in the Appalachians and in the Northeast, a solid forest. It was the, you know, 75, 80% of the forest in some areas. And around the turn of the century, a bark fungus from China got accidentally introduced 
into the United States on trees at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. And it was, um, they had brought in chestnuts from China. Chestnuts exist all over the world uh, in the northern latitudes. And they've been incredibly important as a food source, not just for wildlife, but also for people. I mean, there's remnants of chestnuts in 7,000-year-old Chinese uh, archaeological digs. They're in all the Native American um, archaeological digs in northeastern, in the eastern United States. And they were really important for settlers and for Native Americans as well as for wildlife. And so it, you know, it's an incredible food source. But this disease was brutal. The Chinese, the disease was from China. Chinese chestnuts have resistance to it. And, but the American chestnut didn't. And in the space of about 30 years, 30 million acres of forest died in the eastern United States. I mean, that's easily the largest ecological disaster in American history. And, you know, none of us remember it because we weren't alive. I mean, it's just unknown. Now, if you could imagine all the oak trees in the eastern United States dying off right now, that's how devastating it would be. And my grandfather was a plant breeder in North Carolina, and he watched the chestnut forest die all around him. And so he, a friend of his found a single living tree in this grove of dead trees and took cuttings and sent it to him. My grandfather, after the blight had, had killed off all the chestnuts, had, had planted Chinese chestnuts on his farm in North Carolina. And so he hybridized this single living American chestnut that had some native, you know, natural blight resistance in it with Chinese chestnut. Chinese chestnut does not have a very good tree form. It's not timber-like like the American. And the nut quality is not quite as good. And so he created this hybrid that was that both had really good nut and tree quality and was resistant to chestnut blight. And this was in the 1950s. And when he retired he moved to be near my mom, his daughter, in Alachua, Florida, where the farm is. And he had this grove of chestnut trees on his property. And one of the few chestnut groves in the eastern United States at the time. And they were flight resistant. So we had we just took samples of them, got, you know, inoculated them with blight. They survived the inoculations. Um, we did, you know, we sent them around to different chestnut researchers to see how blight resistant they were and they turned out to be a really high quality tree and so i got out of college and moved to the farm to be uh near my grandparents and started a nursery to be able to grow chestnut trees and we the at the time the u.s was importing millions of dollars of chestnuts for roasting on the open fire and that was our original market was to try to sell them to orchardists to replace the imported chestnuts. And it was a great idea, except when you sell to an orchardist, next year you got to find another orchardist because they planted their crops. So the nursery diversified over time. And I was at a, at a conference. I'm a fisherman. I'm, I, I was not a hunter at the time. And I was at a conference talking to a guy about deer repellent because all the orchardists were having to fence their orchards off because the deer were literally coming in and cleaning out their entire chestnut harvest. And the guy looked at me and said, you need to sell to people who want chestnuts. 
I mean, who want deer, not who want want the chestnuts for harvest. Right. And that was a lot. That was a light bulb that went on. And um, one of my best friends from high school was a professional bass fisherman, Sean Grigsby, and and he introduced me to Bill Jordan from Real Tree. And at at the time, Mossy Oak had a little nursery selling oak trees, and so I went to Bill and pitched the story and said, "Hey, look, we'll you know license." with real tree and call it real tree nursery and sell chestnut trees, which is a way better tree for attracting deer than, than, uh, um, oak trees are because one, they're sweet Two, They don't have any tannin, Uh, you know, deer will eat a white oak long before they'll eat a red oak, just acorn because the white oaks are less bitter. And chestnuts have no tannin whatsoever, and the deer absolutely love them. So we started selling selling chestnut trees to deer hunters probably 15 years ago, and it I think it really changed the concept of food plots in the the entire hunting industry. You know, everybody was planting brassicas, they were planting corn, they were planting beans, they. Um, a lot of those, those crops, you had to plow the ground every year. You had to have machinery or work the soil, and you had to replant. And, the, you know, the beauty of a tree crop for producing food is you plant one time, and you take care of it for a few years, and that investment can last you 100 more years. So you're not just planting for yourself, but you're planting for your, for your kids and your grandkids. And... Deer, when they learn that there's an orchard producing food, the does teach the fawns, and those deer come back every single year. And you know, our our orchard, we have a conveyor belt of schools that hauls the nuts off as well as the deer. When you come home, there's you know half a dozen deer in the orchard at the farm during harvest season. So it's a it's a pretty amazing and I think that really, you know, we kind of discovered a whole new way to improve your land and, and improve your, uh, you know, take care of your farm and, and improve the wildlife on your land. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a number of other services, I guess, maybe if we think of it that way, that trees can provide on a landscape outside of just food, right? I mean, I've heard about the, right, they stabilize tree banks or stream banks if you're planting them by water. They they filter drinking water. Absolutely. They help pollinate, yep. you know, different things. Can you speak a little bit about that stuff? Sure. The, uh, um, you know, one of the, one of the biggest issues that we're facing, not to get too political, but the, the climate change can be reversed by planting more trees. Mm-hmm. I mean, trees take up carbon dioxide, they emit oxygen, they enhance the health of the soil. And there's studies around the world where farmers in Africa in an area that all the trees have been cut, the land's drying out, um, the I've, you know, the crops don't grow well enough, but if they go in and plant trees, especially, you know, even just along fence rows or scattered throughout the pasture, you know, it creates shade for the livestock, shade for the wildlife. It, cre- it creates food sources 
and it actually changes the moisture regime of the climate in that area because the trees, you know, hold moisture in the soil. They emit moisture at night through respiration, which is the, you know, the backside of photosynthesis. And so they, um, they breathe out moisture at night and it's, uh, it, it really can change your entire farm. And if you're buying, you know, old land that's been farmed heavily and the nutrients have been wrung out of the soil from too many crops harvested, if you go in and plant trees, you can completely change that cycle in a, in a very short period of time. It's, it's, there's a lot of research on a lot of different angles about that. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, another another point to that is that, you know, um, local flora and fauna uh, in a native ecosystem is is in itself like a living organism. They're all connected significantly to each other. So when you take out native species uh, and, and you, you know, uh, do, you know, homogenized crops, um, it changes that whole, the whole ecosystem and not just the, the plants, but all of the animals have to change to, you know, adapt to that, that, that local ecosystem, just like our body. You know, if you take out certain types of, um, you know, vitamins and nutrients, we start to not act so healthy. And, and the same goes for an ecosystem. And so when you work to um, put uh, energy into native uh, trees, native plants, um, the whole ecosystem benefits from it. You know, from a food perspective, Mark, like you mentioned, from a pollinator perspective, birds and bees and bugs, um, everything works together. And so from top to bottom, um, you know, from predators down to prey, bugs, microorganisms to, you know, the macro species, it's all, um, it's all connected. And so, you know, planting, planting trees is a part of that process. Yeah. That's a really important point. One of the things that I learned is that we weren't just, you know, selling trees to people to, to attract deer. That it it was a much deeper thing that what maybe you want to call it tree planting or tractor therapy, right? But a lot of the people that we sold to, they were, you know, had office jobs during the week and and they wanted to get to their farm and to improve their land. And we were one of the vehicles for them to get back in touch with the cycles and the earth again. I mean, hunting has that, there's a side to hunting that just like fishing or birding or whatever. It, I mean, that time sitting in the stand, watching the world wake up at dawn. I mean, it's a really important part of the reasons that we get out there and, you know, planting trees and, you know, improving your land and making it, you know, a, a better place for the future is a, it's a really cool process. And yeah. that was a thread that went through, I, I swear, everybody that comes to the farm to pick up trees, that's part of their goal. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's something I can definitely relate to. I, I have had that same experience where if it weren't for having 
involvement in starting to work the land and get involved with habitat improvement, I never would have understood this incredible depth of of the ecosystem, I guess. I, I had to learn about soil. I had to learn about water and sun and how all these different things work together. And it opens up this entire new window that as a hunter, I was never even looking into. I was I was walking through these places trying to just get to where the deer were or thinking about how I was going to get set up for a shot. And I was ignoring all this other stuff around me. Um, and I feel like taking a step like this, whether it's, you know, doing food plots or in this case, trees, um, it, it just takes the blinders off, I think, and makes everything so much richer. Um, it's it's hard to beat that as far as I'm concerned. It's really true. The uh, I used to say that the evolution of a, of a hunter was, you know, I want to kill a deer. I want to kill a lot of deer. I want to kill a big deer. And then it gets to, I want to grow deer. And it's, you know, you're tracking them on your cams. You're watching the bucks as they age. You're saying, okay, that one's going to be a shooter. You know, that one, I'm going to wait another year. You know, their habits, you know, where they're, where they're at on the farm, where they're bedding down. I mean, it's, it's really an amazing process of, of knowledge. And that's, you know, that's an elemental force in being a human for what hundreds of thousands of years, the process of tracking and knowing where all the game is at and everything. I mean, it's a really, really deep, deeply embedded thing in the process of training. Planting trees is just like that. Yeah. So, so Bob, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to um, get back to it a little bit more uh, specifically, that being why we would choose trees over a food plot or why we would choose to add trees to supplement a food plot system. Because, right, as we all know, food plots are very, very trendy. Everybody wants to put them in. So if somebody's listening and they have a property that they're starting to manage or they have been, let's assume they either have food plots or are thinking of doing food plots. Can you give me like your elevator pitch to this person about why a food plot tree plan or trees in general should be added to that plan? If you had like, you know, a minute, a minute or two in the elevator with them, pitch them on this real quick. Yeah, it's certainly not mutually exclusive at all. If, if you've got land and you want to improve it, food plots are tremendous and trees fit into that process really well because you're planting, you know, on the, on the edge of your food plot. So you've got access to sun, um, you know, you're laying out the trees so that you've got shooting lanes, your, um, the, the real benefit though, it's as much economic or ergonomic that you're putting the energy in at the beginning. And I like to say trees are like children. If you plant them out and you don't water them, you know, and you ignore them, you're going to get out of it what you put into them. But if you go out and take care of them for the first three or four years, you're going to have something that's going to reproduce food year in, year out for decades and decades. And I mean, it's a, it's an inexpensive long-term investment in the health of the property and the, you know, basically the, the biological mass that it can support by adding all another layer of, uh, of food production. Plus, you know, chestnuts are, as I mentioned before, are a high carbohydrate energy source and they fall right at the time of the rut. So they are uh, really important and have been for deer a really important resource 
you know, when they need the most energy to be able to chase the does around. So it's, it's a really critical, critical thing. And they're, you know, they're very evolved together. Yeah. Ian, would you add anything? Well, I'd like to, yeah, I would definitely like to add a couple key, key things that I think is just, just really cool. I mean, you know, mother nature provides, um, and the, um, you know, when you plant, um, a, a, you know, your traditional food plot, um, you're going to have a window in which if it's going to grow and you can decide that window and it's going to peak and that's when the nutrition is available. Um, but with, with trees, if you strategically, uh, pick a window of varieties that are going to have um, nutrition available at different times of year, you can build your food plot to have nutrition available all year round. I mean, in the South, we can almost legitimately have fruit at, at almost 12 months of the year, not quite, but if here on the farm uh, in, in Alaska, we, we have uh, just about 10 months where you can be picking something. Um, and as you go further north, that window decreases. However, you know, you can pick varieties that in very early spring and early summer start to have fruit like mulberries. Um, in the south, we have peaches um, that come on in May. And then into the summertime, you have plums that come on in a native plum species like Chickasaw plum. Um, and, and then throughout the summer, uh, you have blackberries, raspberries, and there's blueberries. And, and then further on into, into the fall, then you start to have a lot, um, a lot to come on. There's pear and persimmon. And then of course the hard mass, like chestnut and oaks. Um, and you know, those, those, the, the deer are naturally dependent on those cycles, right? Sad the way that nature has provided food forever. Um, and it, you know, those, those native species will seek out those food sources when they're available. And they also need those food sources at those strategic times for those nutritions. Um, you know, like Bob mentioned, fruit uh, and, and mass trees like chestnut have high carbohydrates sugars in fruits and then in uh in chestnut it's high carbohydrate but it also has healthy fats and then of course right before the winter set there's other hard mass like acorns that have lots of fat so it's really important to have a wide variety of trees that can provide nutrients for the whole year which is a really unique set that um that planting trees provides that um, you know, it's a perfect addition to any food plot. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's really true. Um, you can, in one of the things the nursery can do is help the, the planters help the people plant the trees to cut, you know, to pick the right varieties for the area. Right. So the South, we have very mild winters, no snow, you know, less freezes, 
different trees are adapted to different latitudes, different um, areas. The USDA has what's called a chilling map, which is the number of hours underneath 45 degrees during the wintertime. And so this stands to reason that stuff that grows in northern Illinois is not going to doesn't get enough chilling when you plant it in southern Georgia. And that's especially true with plant with a lot of the fruit varieties that chilling is a, is a factor in triggering the flowering first thing in the spring, which then ends up bearing, uh, you know, bearing the flowers turn into fruit. So it's really important to pick the right varieties for your area. And, you know, in this idea of being able to plant this sequence. So you've always got fruit ripening on your farm. We also went and found things like varieties of persimmons that will fruit in August and varieties of persimmons that will fruit in uh, November, in December. Same thing with pears, same thing with apples. And so having that, you know, that wide range of cultivars that produce at different times also really helps keep the deer on your property. I mean, literally, you can have a five-acre backyard and plant enough fruit there that you're going to pull deer from all over the area because, you know, most areas don't have that amount of food. During the summer, when there's a lot of vegetation, the deer turn to vegetation and eat lots of leaves and grass and stuff like that. But um, having even a little area, it becomes a magnet, right, for every deer in the area to come in and feed. Yeah. And, you know, tell me if you guys have seen this on a wider scale than me, but I've also noticed with things like um, soft mass trees, they're relatively unique in most areas, right? There's going to be thousands of acres of corn, and let's talk, you know, agricultural areas. There'll be thousands of acres of corn, thousands of acres of soybeans, but you might be the only game in town that has apples or chestnuts or persimmons. Exactly. And so it's, you're like the ice cream truck that everybody can only get at your place. (laughs) That's true. Absolutely true. And that's, that is very true. Um, And, you know, another kind of point to that is that, um, when you may be a, a, you may have a unique food source on your property and that's, that's great to have. Um, but I think even more so, you know, I think a lot of people tend to think of a food plot as more of an attractant for a certain time of year so that you can get the deer to come to your property for that time. Um, and, and use it as bait in a sense. And, you know, that can, I think that trees can be used in the same way, but I think more importantly, if you have varieties that are fruiting all year round, you're going to have a herd that stays. And, you know, as we all know, deer, deer don't, they don't live on very large plots they they tend to stick in in a little bit smaller areas um and if you have nutrition um available at all times of year your herd's going to stay and you're going to have you know it it just is consistent um consistent attracting and not even attracting or bait but it's just their home that they decide to stay on 
So yeah, the, the biological term is carrying capacity, right? If you increase the food supply, you can increase the carrying capacity of your land. And so, it, yeah, it's 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 easy easy to prove and easy to see, you know, when you're into your own eyes once you start it, you know, your your crops start producing. Yeah, I, I think a common um, rebuttal to the idea of trees from many people. And this has been something that I've said to myself over the years is, ah, man, but it's going to take so long for these trees to make a difference. I can't wait 10 years or 15 years or however many years until these suckers work. I just want something now. Um, What is your response to that pushback? The best time to plant a tree was, was five years ago. (laughs) It always has been. To answer your question, Mark, if you plant oaks, oaks have a long time to maturity. White oaks can take up to 20 years before they bear fruit. And most of the oaks take 8, 10, 12 years before you get into production. That was one of the really unique things about chestnuts. Chestnuts can bear in only three to five years, so you're not having to wait a long period of time. When you're planting fruit trees, many of them are grafted. And so grafted trees are already using mature wood to graft with. And so they can bear in two to three years as well. So you don't have this long wait time until you start getting into production. And by, you know, with a chestnut, by 10 years, you can be getting 10 to 20 pounds of nuts per tree. So it's not that long a return. And, but, the other interesting thing about chestnuts that's a real advantage is chestnuts bear every year, no matter what. They don't flower until after leaf out in the spring. Oaks flower before they leaf out. And so sometimes oaks get, and you know, if you hunt an area, you know, the oak, the acorn crops will cycle. Sometimes it'll be two or three years, and then you'll get a huge bump of crop of acorns. Wildlife likes repetitive food and you know, they'll be more attracted to come back if you've got food crops every year, or they have to move to find where the acorns are going to be, you know, dropping that year, or if you have a thin year all over. But it's, um, the nice thing about chestnuts is that because they flower so late, they flower after the threat of frost in springtime, and so they miss a lot of those late season spring frosts and produce much more reliable crops year in, year out. So would it be your recommendation to, you know, plant uh, a diversity of different tree and shrub species if you were starting out with something like this? So you would have some things that would start producing mast earlier, like a chestnut or maybe some of these different shrubs and berries. And then, you know, a handful of years later, then whatever else you were planting, maybe apples or persimmons or something else would start producing, you know, in the longer term. So you don't wait. To plant them, you, you get them all planted as soon as possible, and then slowly over time, you're going to get more and more and more production. Is that the way to think about this? Sure, and that's exactly correct. Yeah. yeah, I think you could think about it like that, but I, I do think that there are um, some species that are just they're just really great food plot trees. Um, the chestnut specifically, we have. Uh, we ship to a lot of retailers, Rural King and Walmart, and our the largest size that we ship, which is a seven-gallon size, is a three-year-old tree. And most of what we ship out 
are uh, are just about to flower and fruit. Um, and I see I see chestnuts on those sizes actually really frequently. So I mean, you can go to a store and get a a a, a mass producing tree. Um, same with the persimmon. Same with the mulberry. Um, so it's it, it's actually a lot quicker, I think, than people might um, might think. And those trees, uh, I should say, this about really all trees. Um, most trees, they just produce so much mast. You know, it's something that I look at year after year on the farm with the same trees in our same orchard. I, I I look at all of the food that's being produced. And I'm just blown away by the amount of food that, that is, is out there. We, we harvest every single one of our chestnuts. Um, however, we don't harvest all of our persimmon fruit, our pear fruit, uh, our citrus that's on the farm. There's peach, there's, um, there's mulberry. There's a lot of fruit that we don't harvest. Uh, and there's thousands of pounds that fall. and and go, just go to waste. They rot on the ground. We eat as much as we can, but we just simply can't harvest all of it because um, they're, they're bud good sources. We don't we don't sell the fruit itself on the farm. Um, and so, you know, plant the trees. You will get a significant amount of fruit quite quickly, and much quicker than you may think. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself 
and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So then let's say that somebody is listening and they've been convinced that, yeah, trees should be added to my repertoire. How how would you recommend someone go about thinking through what the right trees would be for different goals or for different areas? How do you how do you think through that? So the the best way for you to determine what to plant in your area, I think first is to look at your USDA zone. USDA plant hardiness zone map is uh, if you just Google that, USDA plant hardiness zone map uh, has your USDA zone and it goes from, you know, warm to cold. Um, in the in the south, it's like, you know, Florida's zone. You know, I think it gets under 11 and then 10 is Orlando area. Nine is where we are in uh, in Gainesville. And it just goes up all the way to, to Michigan where, where Michigan is, I think, zone uh, four, five, four and five. Um, so, uh, check your USDA zone. You can Google that, Google your zip code. And based on that, you can go to really anywhere that sells trees and it should on the tag or on the website, give you that information. Um, and you know, there are, there are some big retailers who are known for having trees and varieties that um, may not survive in your area. So make sure to check that. Um, make sure to take a look at what zone you're planning in and what the trees are. Then, then next from there, I would, I would really recommend just going out and taking a look at your property. Um, what kind of soil do you have? Where are you wanting to plant? Does it have full sunlight? Um, does it have, uh, you know, a way to get water to it? If you don't have a way to get water to it, come up with a plan to get water to it for the first, you know, few years after planting. Um, you can take a soil sample. Um, you can find a soil sample online, um, really anywhere, but also, you know, your local feed and seed store or, you know, your local ag extension office. Uh, can can provide soil samples um, and check out like what what kind of soil you have. Um, you know, do some research into your planting site um, because kind of like that site prep is is important um, is important to think about. Um, and all of those kind of factors will give you a general idea of kind of what what you can plant in your area. But I mean, really primarily. Uh, it's going to be your zone, your USDA zone. Yeah. Okay. So, so then let's say we've done that. We've checked our zone and we've checked what our site specifics are. Um, all things being equal, what would be a handful of your top recommended trees to consider, you know, assuming that some will be right for certain areas. If you had to give me like the greatest hits that everyone should at least look into, what would those be? Yeah, Sure. Yeah, so I think that um, I would start by thinking about a, a range of, um, well, first, 
highly producing trees. And second, having a range of varieties that are going to produce at different times of year, um, I think would be, would be preferable and best for a food plot. Um, but, you know, number one, I would recommend if your primary goal is to attract wildlife and deer, uh, the, 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 the Dunstan chestnut is, um, and the chestnut specifically is um, a, a tree that deer are, are naturally wired to seek out um, because of the rich history of chestnut in, in America. Um, it's, it's something that they just smell and sense and they come to it over many other, um, you know, acorn or, or other, you know, fruit. So chestnut, um, and it produces extremely heavily. Uh, next I'd say persimmon, uh, persimmon also is just a heavy producer. Um, it's high in sugars and, and uh, an important time of year, um, Pear, pear is a really great tree. Um, I mean, many types of pear. You know, I would say, you know, people may be worried about a specific variety, um, but at the end of the day, if your goal is to attract wildlife, most varieties are going to suffice um, with with pear and persimmon. Um, uh, you know whether it's late or not, I mean, just, uh, if it's an edible pear versus a, versus a native pear versus an improved, you know, pear for, you know, uh, a cold, like a cold hardy pear, as long as it's, um, as long as I just think that in general, um, deer are just going to be attracted to fruit. So, uh, lastly, uh, or some more would be um, crab apple. I mean, apple in general, but we we sell crab apple all over the, the eastern United States um, because it is a uh, a native, and um, it it may not have very edible fruit for us, but it does produce highly, um, and it is a native, so it has natural resistance to a lot of that we uh, see in the eastern United States. Um, mulberry is another great producer. Um, and uh, plum, there's native plums, but really any plum. Um, and then, of course, bushes like raspberry, blackberry, blueberry um, are all great producers. Mulberry, I'd add mulberry to that list because it, it's a really early uh, ripening fruit in the springtime. But one of the things that I think um, bears in mind, if you're buying some of the commercial fruit varieties, let's say like a gala apple or a, you know, a, a, a red delicious apple, a lot of the commercial varieties require a lot of sprays and chemicals to produce fruit. They were bred for fruit quality, not for disease resistance. And so we tend to stick to more uh, native cultivars and um, one of the other things you want to do is look at ripening times and we've got several varieties of pears one of them is a dr deer pear that was selected by dr james kroll in texas he found it full of fruit at christmas time 
And so we propagate that because it holds its fruit so late in the season. And there are persimmons uh, that we sell, native persimmons that will ripen in August and some that will ripen in November. So you can have fruit on the tree all the way through the hunting season just because you've got, you plant, you know, an early, a middle season and a late season variety. And they all, so you've got fruit ripening all throughout harvest season. So I think, you know, more native varieties versus commercial varieties is is better for, because they're easier to care for them. And then a wide range of ripening times. Um, and also, you know, just to touch on oak as well, white oak has less tannin than red oak. And, uh, you know, deer have really sensitive taste buds just like us and that they would rather less tannin because of the bitterness. Um, however, like we talked about earlier, ac- uh, acorns can take a really long time to produce. O- oaks and take up to 20 years before they produce. But um, we, we do sell on a website, a, um, we sell sawtooth oak, which is a faster producing oak. It can produce in, uh, you know, seven to nine years, as opposed to the 15 to 20 years with some, some other species. Um, so a sawtooth oak, uh, we also have a gobbler sawtooth oak, which is a little bit more of a compact uh, kind of sawtooth oak. Um, if you're looking to have uh, mass produce quicker. Um, however, acorns are also, when, when they do produce, they produce a significant quantity of high fat uh, mass, which is, uh, you know, a really important food source as well. So, you know, wrapping that into your, uh, your tree food plot is also something to think about. Yeah. So if we're planting tree food plots, uh, as, as we're, as you're referring to them, is it best to do a monoculture? Like, okay, if I'm doing this, I'm going to do chestnuts and it's going to be all chestnuts because I'm going to just get it just right and just the right place, or I'm going to do just apples or just persimmons, or would you instead recommend, you know, a blend? If you're going to do an orchard, it should be a bunch of different things. Like how, how, what would you recommend there? Diversity or perfect the one same thing? From a pollination standpoint, you need to have the trees in the same area. So in small groups, you know, if you've got uh, chestnut trees need to be within 100 feet of each other to cross-pollinate because they're wind-pollinated. And uh, it's better if you've got four or five trees in a group and then, but the idea, you know, don't just plant one or two, plant, you know, half a dozen, eight or 10 trees of a particular type together. And then, you know, your next block will have the same grouping. So not totally random because of pollination concerns, but also um, mixing them up will, you know, you, you can do a lot even in a very small area by just making sure that you've got a mix of different varieties. Okay. So it's kind of a combination of both. Would you add anything to that, Ian? Yeah, I, I think that it's just important to take a look at the, if, if your species um, requires a pollinator or not. Some species are self-fertile um, or just 
produce fruit on their own without a pollinator. Um, so if it does require a pollinator, then you have to plant at least two. However, at least two planted 50 feet apart um, is still only going to produce so many flowers, especially early in the tree's life. So as that tree develops and it starts to produce more flowers every year, um, it will start to pollinate each other um, more and more. But with, uh, you know, with three or five or 10 trees, it's going to start to have more pollen interpollination um, earlier in, in your, in your food plot. So it's something to think about. I, I would recommend having a variety of trees um, because I think that having the different types of nutrients is, is all important. Um, however, it just depends on how large your planting site is, you know, um, and, and, you know, some, some people want to plant three trees, four trees. That's all the space they have. And so in that scenario, you may just want to plant homogenous and have just one variety. Whereas if you have a little bit of space for more trees, then, then I would recommend doing, you know, a couple different varieties with at least, I would say at least three trees within, within pollination space um, so that they can, they can pollinate each other. I was going to say, let's talk a little bit land, um, you know, site selection and your property, or let's say you haven't bought land yet. What do you want to look for? Because Ian mentioned it before, and I think it's really critical, is that your soil is really important for your ability to be able to have a good tree food plot. And, you know, as Ian said before, go look at what's growing on the property right now. If you've got nice oak trees and, you know, elm and beech and that sort of stuff growing on your property, you can grow chestnuts and you can grow oak trees and probably most of the fruit for your area. But if you've got pine flatwood that doesn't have, you know, very good soil, and that's a common soil type down here in the deep south, especially Georgia, South Carolina, and, in, you know, all the way along the Gulf Coast, you need to really find the best planting site. You know, consequently, further north where there's rolling land or, or bottom land, and a lot of people come and say, well, look, it's real wet down there. I want to put the trees down there. That's actually not a place to plant. Um, a lot of trees, chestnuts in particular, don't like wet feet. They can get root fungus, Phytophthora, and it can you know, really stunt or kill the tree from root fungus if the soil stays too wet. If when the snow melts in the spring, down in the bottom of a, of a swale, and it stays moist for a long time, you want to avoid that. You want an area with with air drainage and water drainage. So planting on a side slope, especially like south facing slope is really good. The north facing slope can be really cold if you're up north, you wanna avoid that. So, you know, the microclimate that you pick to plant, or if you're choosing property that has, you know, a range of elevations, you know, the, looking at the native vegetation in the area will tell you a tremendous amount about what you can grow on your property. Mm. The other other problem with with you know bottom land is in late spring frosts, which always occur, uh, cold air settles in those low pockets. 
and you can get a frost down in one of those pockets going up on the hillside it never frosts at all and so you can get leaf damage or flower damage from late frost if you plant down in a you know in a bottom on a in a pocket so you, typically orchard sites are better where there's good air drainage and water drainage in the soil okay so. that's exactly what the next thing i was curious to learn a little bit more about now what about sun you know, do we need 100% full open sunlight or can you get away with some partly shady kind of patches in an already somewhat timbered location for these types of things? Is it, which is it on that front? Yeah. Um, you know, Chesa's in particular, they're a forest tree. The reason they were so common in the forest is they were faster at competing to the tree fall gap, you know, if you're a little seedling underneath the big shaded canopy, you got to sit there and wait until you get a shot at the light up above. And if the tree fell, chestnuts were faster at colonizing that gap than any other species. It's one of the reasons that they were so widely spread. Plus animals, you know, transported the seeds around and planted them all over the place, squirrels, that sort of thing. But the, the partial shade, partial sun, the more sun, the better. But planting in a forest is not a problem as long as they have some access to sunlight. And then some trees, a lot of the fruit are, you know, they're not canopy trees anyway. There might only be 20 or 30 feet tall maximum. And so they can grow in a, you know, along a forest edge. You know, if you've got a regular food plot, there's no better place to plant trees than on the edge of that, you know, that existing open food plot. It's perfect location. Hmm. Speaking of uh, how quickly growing chestnuts are, there was uh, a quote from a book I love called The Overstory, and I I jotted it down in case there was an opportunity to read it, and so I got to throw it in here. He wrote that the trees thicken like enchanted things. Chestnut is quick. By the time an ash has made a baseball bat, a chestnut has made a dresser. Bend over to look at a sapling, (laughs) and it'll put your eye out. I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) That's a wonderful book, by the way. Yeah. So, so tell me this, um, I kind of want to get into some of the how to, so let's say we've, we've decided we want trees. We we're going to try a couple different of these varieties. We're going to do some clusters here and there. Um, we found a good site for it. Now we're going to actually get out there and plant them. Um, is the, is your recommended planting process for trees basically the same for all these species? You know, so if you were to tell me the best way to plant a crab apple, would it be about the same as what you'd tell me when I'm planting a chestnut or a white oak or a persimmon, or are they really different for each species? It's, it's a great question, but they're all really similar. Um, you dig a hole about the size of the container that the tree came in. You don't need a big hole, and especially in areas with heavy clay, don't dig this giant four-foot-wide hole and put a bunch of mulch in the bottom. That becomes a sponge to hold moisture and root fungus. So what we recommend is you dig a hole you know, about the size of or a little bit bigger than the, you know, the container. Let's say it's a three-gallon pot or a seven-gallon pot, and you can... Then when you unpot the tree, you break up the roots all around the perimeter of the root ball. And, and if you've got stuff that's crossed up or you know, growing together, you can go in with a pair of clippers and clip them apart. But open, massage them open and break them up. And it's those young little tiny cedar roots that are where the tree 
uh, uptake all its moisture and nutrients from not the big thick roots, the little white filaments along the along the edges of the roots at the tips of the roots. So you put the soil back in after you put the tree in, and then you water it in really well, basically mud it in. And what that does is that gets rid of air pockets. Because when those little tender young cedar roots grow into an open air pocket, uh, they die. And then you're not uptaking moisture. But if you flood the hole when you plant it, put your mud, put your, all your soil back in. And I don't know why when you dig a hole in the ground, you put a tree back in there and there's never enough dirt to fill it back up. But <laughs> you, you, um, you create a mud bath for it and that gets rid of all of the, uh, the air pockets. And then you can kind of create a little dam around the outside. And then what's really beneficial is put your mulch on top. And that keeps the surface roots moisture. When that tree gets big, 90% of those roots are within one or two feet of the surface. I mean, they may send a tap root down, but that, that root zone is this giant nutrient collecting web that goes out to the tips of the branches. And so it's this, you know, it's this huge filter out there trying to get moisture and nutrients. And it's going to recycle the nutrients that are in the leaves when the leaves fall. Um, but so you want to, you know, first you want to make sure your, your soil has good what's called tilt. It, it, it's not rock hard. It's not shale rock. Um, don't put fertilizer down in the hole, which is a common misconception because fertilizer burns roots. Those, all those young feeder roots, especially if you're using lawn fertilizer or something like that, get a good time-release fertilizer that's going to release slowly over three to four months or longer through the growing season. That way you're not going to burn the, burn the roots at transplanting and mulch those things in, and that mulch helps keep the moisture in the soil after you mud it in. And, and the number one single most important thing is to continue watering the tree on a regular basis for the first several years. And, you know, a lot of people, they live two hours from their hunting camp, their land. If you can get out, get a tank for the back of your tractor, get a tank that fits in the back of your pickup truck, you can get five-gallon buckets and drill a little tiny hole in it and let rain, any rain that fills up fill the bucket and have it dribble back down on the tree. If you got access to a well, you know, you can pump and haul that water out there or put it in an irrigation system. But that water is the essence of survival for the tree. And if you don't water it and you get a, one of those hot, dry summers like we've had the last few years, you could, you know, it's just throwing your money away to, to not, not go back and water that tree. The other thing that we really highly recommend is the use of, of grow tubes or tree tubes. And we've tested a bunch of different ones. We sell some on the website. The tree tube for a young tree actually it does three or four things. First, during the winter, critters want to chew, like mice and rabbits want to chew on the trunks for food. And deer, you know, they'll eat the leaves, of, especially of a chestnut tree when the tree is young because they're so, they're so tender and sweet. So the tree protects it physically from predation. Second, um, you know, Bucks like to rub their antlers on them in the fall, especially a young tree. Yeah. And a tree tube protect, protects it from that. The third 
most and probably the most important thing what they were developed for is during at night when that transpirational moisture is released out of the leaves it condenses on that tube and it slides back down and recycles the water so it's not just going up into the air but it captures that moisture and recycles it down into the roots so you know the watering you're doing is it's sticking around longer because the tube captures that moisture and and it drains back down to the roots. And, you know, when you're testing, planting a tree by itself versus inside a tree tube, you can get two to three times the growth in a year of out of a tree tube than you can just by putting it out in the open. So it has a lot of different advantages. And so that would be instead of using a cage, right? You, you would never use both at the same time. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. You could use both, absolutely. Because okay. in the beginning... In the beginning, the moisture the, is, is really valuable. And then you just go in and take that tree tube off. And this will last for years. You take it off after two or three years and then and replace it with a cage or put the cage, you know, pull it off and just let it grow inside the cage. But, yeah, if you've got, especially if you've got bare, tree tubes are like play toys. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, they can really get in and, and uh wreak havoc with them and so the cage helps a whole lot yeah for that and if a buck's rubbing on them uh, you know the cage protects keep the tree tube from being pushed off yeah uh ian is there anything else you'd add to that and then one other uh specific thing i i watched a video of you talking once about weed mats and that's something we haven't talked about yet i'd be curious your thoughts on on that and anything else sure yeah you know i w- one more thing i would well, just a couple of things I would add. One, I just I just can't help but stress that the number one thing that goes wrong with with planting is is watering. It, it's just a lack of water. Um, so I just have to reiterate what Bob said that getting water to your tree in the first couple of years, just like you said earlier, um, you know what you get in, what you put into it is what you get out of it, and so. Having a plan to water is crucial for establishing a tree. Um, so, you know, water plan, water plan, water plan. Um, but then I, w- I would also add, you know, just, just to clarify, the, the grow tube is specifically for uh, a younger tree, like a year, a year old tree, 18 to 36 inches. Our tree tubes are typically four to five foot, so a tree that would fit inside a, a, a small grow tube like that. Um, you know, we ship we ship online, and, and most of our online shipping uh, are, are smaller trees, eighteen to thirty six inches, a couple of feet uh, at, at at most, and those those should go into a grow tube. Grow tubes are just so beneficial, like Bob explained. Um, but uh, you know, uh, our uh, our larger sizes that we ship to larger retail box stores like Walmart, Rural King, they're a little bit too large for a grow tube. Um, but what I would recommend is having a cage for, for both. So at any planting time, no matter the size, having a tree cage I think is really crucial because wildlife um, is going to just mess with it. You know, the, the grow tube is going to help maybe with with, with small critters like rice, mice, and squirrels, um, but you know anything larger—deer, bear—you um, got to have a, a pretty substantial 
tree cage. Otherwise, there's they, they just love the tender root, the tender tips of a newly growing tree in the springtime. And if it's below the browse line, they're going to get in there and they're going to knock it over and it's, you know, investment is, is gone. Um, but, uh, yeah, weed mats are a great addition. Um, you know, weed is competition for nutrients and, and moisture. And so if you're, uh, you know, if you let, uh, weed competition grow up and basically strangle a tree out of, um, you know, that, that, you know, that nutrient I've seen it before where we've actually done this before on the farm. We haven't gotten back out to a new planting on one of our orchards and we see, um, it, it basically out competes and even out sunlight, uh, some of the smaller trees. I mean, the grass can get, as you know, huge and, and that'll, that'll just kill a tree. So a weed mat at least gives it a little bit of room. Um, so that, you know, if you can't get out there, it'll take a little longer for that weed competition to grow up around it, the grass to grow up around it. Um, and something else to mention um, that we haven't touched on yet is, you know, is, is herbicide. Um, and, you know, it's okay to, to spray herbicide around a, a, a tree um, if you're, if you're, <laughs> What I what I would say, if you're not an expert, I would not um, broadcast spray around a newly planted tree. Um, a grow tube can help protect a very young tree. Uh, any tree in the first, you know, three to five years, it doesn't have significant bark development yet, and its um, cambrial layer is just underneath the tip, you can actually take your thumbnail and scratch a, a, a young tree and you'll see green. Um, and if you spray herbicide, it, it, it will go into that, um, that, you know, soft layer and it can kill a newly planted tree. So a weed mat is, a, it's just a, another kind of, you know, step in protection that you can take before spraying. Um, and I would recommend hand weeding around young trees for some time, um, because even if you spray and even if you think you, you are not getting the base of the tree with any of your herbicide, um, there's wind will drift if there's a windy day or even a, you know, a little after it, it, it can, it can kill a new tree. So you just got to be really careful about about weed protection, which is why we recommend a weed mat. Okay. Other than that ongoing water plan in the long term, is there any other maintenance for these trees you'd recommend? I mean, I've heard some with apple trees, there's pruning and things like that that are sometimes recommended. Is is there anything else we should be thinking about other than what you've mentioned? Chestnuts and many of the trees don't take that much pruning. Um, they're naturally going to seek the light and to send that main shoot up. And, you know, you may want to prune off some lower branches, you know, to get it up above the browse line so they're not eating the leaves on the lower branches. Or if you're working with machinery in there where you want to be able to get underneath and, you know, ride a mower around, that sort of thing. But it's, 
there's there's not a huge amount to do. Regular fertilization once a year in the early spring with a time-release fertilizer, um, or if you hit a really bad uh, drought, right? Uh, four or five years ago, there was just a tremendous drought, and trees were dying all over the eastern U.S., especially in the corn corn-growing regions in the Midwest, and uh, it's you know, if you can get water back out, if you hit one of those droughts, that's some time when you may need to go out. But that's the beauty of it. Is once the trees are established after three or four years, they take care of themselves. So, you know, we haven't talked about pest management very much, but there are really not many pests, just have hardly any. Um, they're, you know, you're not, it's not something you have to go out and spray. And if you're using good native varieties, you're not having to, you know, to use a lot of chemicals. And I really second what Ian is saying and, and that stay away from Roundup um, in the for, in the early area, ages of the tree. You'd be surprised at the amount of drift that goes on. And you, you, know, you can kill a young tree really easily uh, with, with accidental overspray. So just stay away from it and use the weed mat and use the hoe. Okay. Perfect. Well, we, we've, we've covered a lot about the why we've covered the, what we've covered the, how is there anything, Bob, when, when you're thinking through this topic that you think is really important to still touch on that we haven't yet? Is anything lingering on the tip of your tongue that you really got to get out there? Or do you feel we've, we've checked the boxes? Don't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Every year you put every year you put it off. Um, you know, it's one, one more year you got to wait for crops, even with, with stuff that's fruiting in three or four years, I it, the rewards you get on a whole lot of different levels from planting and growing trees is an amazing process. And it really is, you know, as you talked about, it changes the way you, you see your world. And I think that's the really, uh, really most important lesson from this whole process. You're enhancing your land, but you're also learning how to really see into the cycles in nature and and participate in those cycles. One of the things that's not talked about very much, and um, but if you read the earliest settlers and uh, in the United States, the earliest explorers that the Native Americans living here planted chestnuts, they planted walnuts, they planted hickories because they knew the value of those food crops. And, you know, one of the reasons that chestnuts may have been so common in such a large area is they were planted by the, by the early native populations that lived here. And so, you know, we're living in an era right now where there's so much development and, you know, we've, we've farmed it fence row to fence row, take a little time, replant those fence rows, plant around your food plots, replant some of the areas that have been logged and you're, you know, you're really doing, not only are you going to learn about the cycles, but you're doing, you know, the whole system of, of, of benefit and, you know, you'll reap the harvest for decades. Yeah. Ian, would you, uh, would you add anything else? And then also, would you give us uh, a rundown of where listeners can find more about your nursery online, how they can order trees or any other other things we talked about? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, I think kind of like Bob started with there. It, it, it's true. It's just, you know, just getting started. I think is is, you know, the best thing. I I know that um, as just like with everything else, um, you know, you can read about it all you want. You can think about watering and the, you know, the weeding, but until you do it, you may not. Um, you're just you're just not going to figure out how it's going to work on your property and, and you know in your environment um in your soil you know at your planting site until you do it and you might find some hiccups along the way you know mother nature likes to throw curveballs with with weather and climate and you know pests sometimes and disease that that come up um, and so I just would recommend getting started because the sooner you do, the sooner you can have an established plot. Um, but, you know, besides that, it's, it's just a matter of doing it just like anything else. And, um, you, know, yeah, you, you can, so you can Google us at, uh, Chestnut Hill Outdoors. Uh, we have a website, chestnuthilloutdoors.com. Um, you can purchase from us for our two major shipping seasons. We have a, a shipping season in spring and a shipping season in fall, but you can place orders uh, for most of the year. Um, but the, the best time to, to start, you know, looking for those orders is kind of late summer when we start turning on the website inventories. And then in, in you know, the, the mid to late fall, we'll start turning on our inventories for spring as well. So, Keep an eye out on that. You can also follow us on Chestnut Hill Outdoors, Facebook and Instagram. And we make announcements about those kinds of things. Um, and we, we also shoot all kinds of information out and fun, you know, clippets of stuff for, for learning. Um, and then we also ship to uh, Walmart, Rural King, and uh, some select co-op feed dealers in Pennsylvania and New York. But we ship just about all through the eastern United States. Uh, and if you want to find a location near you, you can go on our website to the store locator, which has a, uh, you know, a search bar that you can search your town or your zip code, and it'll pop up all the stores within you know, a 60 mile radius of you. And you can go to that store. You can see how many we shipped, you can see when we shipped it. Um, we're in the middle of our main shipping season right now in spring. Um, so it's just, we're just starting to get into those stores. Um, and, uh, you know, just also if you want to hear more about the information we talked about today, we have just about all of it on the website. We have a learning center. You can go into that learning center and read about watering and staking and weed control and, and how to, how to do all of it. Um, so, you know, we, we just, you know, we have a lot of institutional knowledge that we find it's our purpose to hand that off to people. And so it's all available, all there for you to, to take advantage of. And, and we hope that it helps you to be successful at planting trees. Amazing. I, uh, I, I really appreciate it. It's been fun to get to dive more into this topic with you guys. And uh, like I said, I've been on a, been on a tree bender lately and uh, i'm excited to get my hands dirty and plant <laughs> some this spring too so you guys have uh, helped me out personally as well so thank you great mark really yeah, thank you so much yeah absolutely let's talk again soon all right very good thank you okay
that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in, guys. It's uh, it's Earth Day in just a few days after this one publishes. So if you don't already have plans, maybe consider planting a tree. Plant a tree or two. Get a chestnut. Put it in the ground. Help bring these suckers back. Or maybe just find whatever's available at your local Walmart and plant it in your backyard or on your back 40. It's going to be great for deer. It's going to be great for all sorts of animals. It's good for the water. It's good for the air. It's good for you and me. So uh, that's my that's my final message for you. I appreciate you listening. Let's go plant some trees. Read the over story if you haven't yet. Check out Chestnut Hill Outdoors. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.